that it is by your word that you accomplish these things, that you lead us away from temptation, you deliver us from the evil one, and our confidence is in that. For yours belong the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So, Lord, open our ears to hear and give me words to speak, Lord, that will change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is, uh, has some controversial verses in it, at least verses that have sparked some debate within the history of the church, uh, and we get to look at that today. People were asking me, are we looking at the whole chapter in one week? I said, well, of course we are. Uh, it's kind of been our approach as we look at this book of Romans to, to, to see the pattern of Paul's argument as opposed to getting locked in on one or two specific verses within a context. So we're going to look at that. But election, I mean, is, is, even as I say the word, it probably has some measure of connotations for, uh, for you, either a positive or a negative connotation. Maybe it has... Uh, brings back a time in your own spiritual walk when you hit upon that doctrine and it struck a nerve in one way or the other. So hopefully uh, that memory of that will spark your interest just to read it. So would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 1 through 29. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen." But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, 
desiring to show his wrath and to make, his, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is God's word. Go ahead and have a seat, please. Well, again, election can bring all kinds of connotations, the doctrine of election. You know, I grew up in a tradition in which this, this idea of election being something that resided solely on the basis of something in God's mind was presented to me as this awful teaching, uh, because that would forebode man having any choice, as though either man has a choice or he has no choice, and God is in complete control, and man is kind of like a puppet. And that's, that's kind of a, that's not a pleasant idea. And so as I grew up, this idea of election, which I had no idea was actually in the Bible, I just thought it was some evil doctrine that some man had invented. And then I remember getting into college and uh, uh, the Lord awakening my heart and, and being involved in a campus ministry and, uh, where I'm talking to other students about the gospel and we're, you know, we're presenting them with these four spiritual laws, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but man is sinful and separated God. Therefore, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die the death that we should have died, and therefore you must have faith to believe. You must choose Him, and the idea was that you must choose. And this, this verse that we would present as proof of that or evidence of that choice was from Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. And I wasn't quite sure as I present that verse to other students what it actually meant. What is he talking about? Which, what exactly is the gift that he's referring to? Is he referring to the gift of salvation or is he referring to the gift of faith? Because uh, I would say that God grants the gift of salvation to those because he has seen they have faith. Or is it the gift of faith itself which has led to the gift? which means even man himself can take no responsibility for the faith that he, ex he examines. So I thought, well, the best way to answer that question is to go look at the context in which it was given. So I went back and read the book of Ephesians for probably the first time. And right there in chapter 1, we have this word predestin predestination and election. And I just remember my jaw hitting the floor thinking, what is this word doing in the Bible? I didn't think it was supposed to be there, according to the way I had been brought up. And so I began to explore this idea of God's election and realize that it's not just in Ephesians, it's all throughout the Bible. And here we come upon it in this particular chapter. So you might think, as a result, we're going to dive into what election is, but we're only going to partly do that because that's really not what Paul is trying to do in this chapter. There's another context in which he's giving this, and that's what I want to look at is the context of why on earth does he start talking about election here? 
because he's primarily, I think, in this section addressing his Jewish colleagues, his Jewish brothers and sisters, and they are facing somewhat of a dilemma in all of the things that Paul has been saying and of what they've been observing with their own experience. Because in, at the time when Paul is writing this, the church has been growing, and predominantly it's been growing from people from the Gentiles. From pe- the Gentiles just means other nations besides Israel. So it's been growing with people that are outside of the nation of Israel. And that was a puzzling thing, of course, for the Jewish people, because they had thought that all the, all the privileges of belonging to God's kingdom belonged to them uniquely. So it was kind of eye-opening that was happening. But that's not the only thing that they were observing. They were also observing the fact that many of the Jewish religious, of the, religious leaders of the day were rejecting Christ. And so if you think about those two things together, if the Jews are the ones whom God has elected from all the other nations to belong to Him, and Christ is the Savior, and these Jews whom God has elected have rejected Christ, then something has to give. Either God's Word has failed in His regard to electing the people of Israel because they've rejected the Savior, or the Savior can't be the Savior. That was the quandary that He knew His fellow Jews were in. So he's, he's addressing that. That's what this chapter is about. He's addressing that. And that we see that coming out, I think, what is it, in verse 6? What shall we say, or sorry, uh, verse 6, but it is, not, is that verse 6? But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. So that's the context. The Word of God has not failed you, even though you're making these observations. This idea of election, which is not something, by the way, that would have been for an idea to the Jewish people. They were well familiar with this idea of election. They consider themselves to be the nation that was elect from all the other nations to be set apart and belong to God because of what had transpired throughout their history. I mean, he says, after, he says, for example, they are Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So they point to all of these things to say, look, here's the evidence that we are the elect people of God. We have all of these things. So they can't possibly both of these things be true. So what I want to do is examine that. Has the Word of God failed? And look at the way that Paul has answered that. And then nextly, because he begins to address what election is as an answer to that, then is election fair if we see observing the things that are happening? So has the Word of God failed? And is God's election fair? Is kind of where we want to go as we explore this passage. So first of all, he's answering their 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 assumption that he is assuming by, if his message is true, then, be, then that we are saying that God's word must have failed because Israel, who was God's elect, has rejected, is being rejected now. Those things can't possibly exist. So he's exploring their own past. He says, look, you, you're only partially right about your understanding of God's election in the Old Testament. Yes, you're right. You among all the peoples were elected out of all, but you have to look more closely at the nature of how God's election has worked, and it's right there on the pages of the Old Testament. I'm not introducing to you something new, so I want to take you back, he's telling his fellow Jews, and look, let's look closer at your own history. So he begins right there, for not all who are children, or not all who are descended from Israel, this is how he begins that, belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That's what he's going on to say. Now, Abraham, to them, would have been a very familiar person. He was the patriarch. He was the, the first of all the, of all the people on the earth to be set apart by the Lord 
to be the forefather of the Jewish nation, of the Israelite nation. And in fact, the story of Abraham is a story of election, by the way. Uh, the Abraham himself, Abraham, as we are told in Genesis chapter 12, was living in a land, a, a city state called Ur in the ancient Mesopotamian region. In that particular region of the world in that time, uh, they worshipped a whole host of pantheon of pagan gods. Uh, so it's, uh, the evidence would point to us, especially given the names Abram and Sarah, would point to that they too were participating in the cultural practices of the worship of these idolatrous gods. Now, that doesn't mean they, didn't, they weren't aware of the stories of, of the God of the Bible, of Yahweh. Certainly, they would have to have been to have passed that on. But, it, but, you, but they can be both aware of the Yahweh God of the Bible and engaged in the cultic practices of their culture at the same time. So, when God separates Abraham out, it isn't because somehow Abraham got it right and all the other people in Ur got it wrong. It's like, no, he's most likely, again, an idolater, but God is saying, look, I'm going to pull you out because I'm going to make of you a nation belonging to me. Now, that was an interesting thing, too, because if we go back and look at the chapter before, chapters before in the book of Genesis, we noticed that recently they had had the Tower of Babel. And as the Tower of Babel tells us, that's when God dispersed the peoples by dividing them according to different languages. And if we go and read Moses' account of that in Deuteronomy 32, he was dividing the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, I know that could be kind of a controversial topic of who are these sons of God, but it would seem to imply that when he divided the nations according to the sons of God, he's dividing the nations among this, whatever this group of sons of God is, to be the ones that are overseeing or, over, over, or caring for, judging, in some sense, these nations. So it's as though he's putting all the peoples under the governance of, one, of someone who is not him. That's the idea of, of sub-governors, if you might think. So when Genesis 12 comes along, the unique thing there is saying, I'm going to take you, a person who's, who's under the guise of the governance of one of these, I'm going to pull you out, and I alone am specifically going to be the one caring for you. You are going to be my people, and I will be your God. And I will give you a land that I will show you, and I will make your descendants as numerous as, as the stars in the sky and, and, the, and the sand on the seashore. So God has elected Abram from among all the other nations to belong to him uniquely. So that's, that's the first aspect of election, and we see that there's hints of it that it's not dependent upon human will. We read nothing about Abraham seeking after God before that moment. We don't even read the name of Abram before that moment. The first we read of him, God is calling him. God is electing him out. So the idea of election not having anything to do with the will of man is, is subtle, but it's there even in the calling of Abraham. But Paul's going a step further, and he's talking about Abram's children. I'm sorry, I need to keep bouncing back between Abram and Abraham. Abraham's name was changed when God was reaffirming his promises. And, it, and even that is a subtle reminder that I am making you mine as the name Abraham includes some of the syllables of God's name Yahweh there. So there's uniqueness in the, in the name change, as though there's a, there's a new status of to whom you belong. Um, but in any case, Abram has been given these great promises. He's been wandering in this land now that God said is going to be his for some time, and he and his wife are getting older. And they're beginning to think, hmm, I wonder how we're going to see these promises fulfilled since we don't have any children. 
So Sarah, his wife, has this idea, well, why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar, and have a child by her? Now, that was not an uncommon practice in his day, culturally speaking. So Abram says, okay, takes Hagar as his wife, and they have a child named Ishmael. But God says to Abram, it's not to Ishmael that my promise is going to be fulfilled. And he comes and says, and he's referring to this specific promise in this passage, Paul is saying, uh, um, sorry, I made a mistake in not including the verse numbers, so I'm, I won't do that again. Yeah, here it is. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. So the idea is that it's not going to be Ishmael, but it's going to be a son that's born from Sarah. And that was a unique thing because at the time that promise was given, you know, Sarah laughed at it when she overheard it because she was past childbearing age. So it was a, you know, a biological, physical impossibility that she would have kids. And I think that's, of course, part of the whole point is that God's elective purposes are happening completely and utterly according to the will and power of God and not the will and power of man. So, the, so even in Old Testament uh, Israel's history, he, Paul is trying to show these Jews who are worried about the Word of God failing because it doesn't seem like the people of Israel has elected anymore. He's saying, no, all along there's been a distinction between those sons of promise and those sons of the flesh. So even as far back as your forefather, Abraham, you see that not all who are born from his body are meant to be the recipients of this promise. So that's being established right there. And then as we go on, he uses another reference. Isaac was the son that was born uh, to Abraham and Sarah, and he's referring now to Isaac's children. For Isaac and Rebekah have twins, Jacob and Esau. And, And Paul is pulling them back to this time to show that, uh, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, why does he say that? Why is he saying that? He's doing that to show that before the, if you go back and look at the verses right before that, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So it's the reiterating of this aspect that, that you as God's people are elect because God has done all the work necessary. God is, it, it does not depend on man's will at all. And that was important for the Jews to hear, especially to understand this nature of their thinking of themselves as God's elect people. Well, how do we know we're God's elect people? Well, because we have the patriarchs, we have the law, we have all of these things. He says, no, you are God's elect because God has elected you before the foundation of the world. And just because you are physically descended from Abraham doesn't mean you are included in this elect. So while it might appear to you on the surface that God's word has failed because it doesn't look like it, Israel itself is all embracing this new gospel message of Christ. So that's not the case. This has always been the case. There's always been a unique remnant, even throughout the Old Testament, that is separated out from the physical descendants of the people of Israel. So that's his first way he's answering this question. Don't be alarmed with this whole idea of election. God's election hasn't failed. You just haven't looked close enough to understand the nature of this election. That's the first thing he's trying to say. 
as we look at this. Yes, God's Word is still succeeding, even though it doesn't look like you expected it to look like. So then he goes on with the next question. Well, is that fair? That doesn't seem very fair. After all, we, the Jewish people, have embraced these traditions that have been handed down to us. We have embraced the law. We have embraced the, the, the ceremony around the temple. We have embraced this idea that we are the inheritors of Abraham's promise. And they, and they essentially prided themselves on that. So they're asking, it doesn't seem fair that we would pursue you, Lord, according to these ways, and now you're rejecting us? That doesn't seem fair. And again, it goes back to the idea, does election depend upon man's past performance, or does it depend upon something else? And that was a, was a big question, of course, in the Jewish mind, and they wouldn't put it necessarily in those terms, but that's really what's at stake. And I, I know that's, I mean, that's still a, a problem for us, too. When we think of the word election, the thing that comes to mind is, well, election season. We're about to enter election season. We're about to elect people to, to govern over us, and when we do that, we are always basing that on the past performance of the candidates. Well, most of us are. That's the idea, that you would look at their track records and you would vote accordingly, or at least their character, or whatever it is that you're taking into account. You are taking into account something about the nature of that person that says that they are qualified to be elected. And that idea is, is attractive to us to think, well, maybe that's what God's doing. God is electing people as He looks as he looks down upon the earth to see who it is that's pursuing him, that's, see who it is that's, that's keeping the law, to see who it is that really wants him, and those are the people that he's going to elect. That would seem certainly fair, right? But, the, of course, the problem with that is it assumes some things to be true. It assumes that there is this people out there that are truly and sincerely and earnestly seeking after God, and God is stiff-arming them, so I'm sorry, but you're not on the roll. I don't see your name here. You can't come in. And I think that's why we think it's unfair, because we have this idea that there's a whole host of people that really want to belong to God, and God is rejecting them. Uh, but it is interesting what, what Paul says, especially as he, the way he concludes uh, this chapter. What does he say? He's, he's quoting from Isaiah. He says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What is he talking about there? Well, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know that story? Right, they were utterly destroyed. Everyone in the city was destroyed. You know, the, the raining down of burning sulfur upon the city to wipe out and annihilate anyone who was living there. And the, the, the idea is that, look, you, Israel, would be like that if it really were according to what was fair, because this is what you deserved. You deserve to be completely and utterly wiped out. And this fits what Paul's been saying all along as he's quoted again from the Old Testament back in Romans chapter 3, there is no one who seeks after God, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God, no, not one. So if we relied on the basis of fairness, of who is it that God would look upon on the earth and to see who is honestly seeking Him, who would He find? He would find, according to the whole Old Testament, He would find no one. He would find no one. So the idea that is it, is it fair that God elects somebody, well, we would say, well, fairness has nothing to do with it. Because if fairness did have something to do with it, no one would ever be inheritors of the kingdom of God if it depended on human will. So, of course, 
That, you know, whole idea brings up some other problems. We'll look at that section. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So there, here's a summary. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, when he has mercy, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardened whomever he wills. Now, this whole idea, which is introduced here, not only does he hardening some people, but he's or having mercy on some people, but he's hardening others. Now, this this is a whole other concept of difficulty. Wait a minute, is God hardening people? Because if he's the one hardening people, it certainly wouldn't seem fair that he's judging them for something that he himself caused to be the case. That's the question that he's asking here. I mean, this is exactly what he goes on to say. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's the question. Does God really harden people? Now, that's an interesting question to ask, and it's not as straightforward an answer as you might think. Because if we go back and read the account that he's referring to here with Pharaoh, he's talking about when the Israelites were enslaved under, the, under Egypt, and the Pharaoh is approached uh, to let my people go, and he says no. And, if you re- and there are repeated statements, repeated verses. Let me get to them. This is what happens when you don't follow your notes exactly. In Exodus... Here we go. In Exodus 8, this is in the midst of the plagues. In Exodus 8.15, Exodus 8.32, and Exodus 9.34, we read something like this, which is, which is from, I'm going to read from verse 15. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite from the, from the plague that had happened, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. And then we read the same thing again in 8.32 and 9.34. So as Moses is recounting this, he's ex- he is showing how it was Pharaoh who had full culpability for hardening his own heart. That is, that is absolutely true. And yet, in the same breath, he has said, even before any of those verses take place, back in Exodus 4.21, which is what Paul is referring to, and the Lord said to Moses before he ever goes to Egypt, when you get back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And so, you know, we might be forced to ask, well, which is it? Did God harden his heart or did Pharaoh harden his heart? And I think there's two ways you can look at it. In the one sense, Pharaoh is culpable for hardening his heart, but it was within the sovereign plan of God to bring about the election of, of God's people. And that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. So, yes, it was within the plan of God who had sovereignly ordained it, but it was Pharaoh himself who hardened his heart. So, the reason that Paul is bringing that up here is to show that it was God that hardened his heart is not to say that Pharaoh wasn't deserving of it. It was to say that God is so far in charge of the election of His people that He is sovereignly ordaining even these wicked events to take place. That's the amazing thing about, the, the, about election. It is, it is so far being worked out by the plan of God that we can have absolute confidence in what He is doing. And I think that's the message He's trying to get across to the people. God's Word hasn't failed. In fact, it's actually being fulfilled. But you have to see how. And why is that important? So that our confidence 
can remain high in what God is doing, especially when we see things unfolding in ways that we don't expect. When you see things happening in ways that you don't expect or you don't think it's right, and you begin to question perhaps God and His purposes and His plan, is to remember how sovereign actually is our God, that He is bringing about the struggles and the difficulties and the unexpected things that we experience in this world for the purposes of what? Of bringing to fruition those whom He has elected to their, to their place of glory. That's what He's doing. And I love this. The answer, of course, to that question He gives is an interesting answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which is prepared beforehand for glory? even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So you think, what, what is He talking about here? Well, we get the concept. I mean, we can imagine a potter. My daughter at Southwestern, she's taking a ceramics class, so she's making pottery. And she has an interesting comment that it's a lot more difficult than it looks. Uh, but she, she talks about what happens to the extra clay. You know, you might be making a vase out of one piece, you might be making another, something, something else out of another piece, but all the scrap pieces go out in the back and they get dumped in this one bin. And, you know, Paul is referencing this idea of a potter and how is it that can, he can take this, this clay that's all identical and choose to make out of some of it vessels for, for uh, beautiful use and, and vessels for uh, or, ordinary use. Is that, is that unfair that's the question here, to the clay. I mean, that's really the question because it's all of the same nature. And we, from the perspective of the potter, well, of course he has the right to do that. He's the, he's the maker of it. He's the decision maker of what it gets to become because he is its master. He is its owner. He is its creator. Now, think about this. Election, does God have the right to do that? I would say only God has the right to bring about election in such a way because only God is the creator and therefore the master and the owner of people. We are His creatures. We have not somehow become independent of our Maker that we could actually speak, back, speak out in such a way. I mean, the ultimate reason that you exist is only for the glory of God. That's it. That is why you exist, for the glory of God. Now, if God chooses to make some for one purpose and another for another purpose in order to establish His glory, then He is absolutely right in doing so. That's, that's of course, the statement. And that's a hard thing for us to hear because we want to think of ourselves as independent. We want to put ourselves on the same par with God in terms of, of, of uh, a personhood and rights, but we're just not. God is God, and there is only one of Him, and we are His creation. Therefore, He has the right to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that God is capricious. It doesn't mean that God is whimsical. 
what we have to see is that God is absolutely merciful. And He's so merciful to, to those whom He has elect to, to receive His glory. He's doing it in such a way by electing some to, this vest, to become vessels of wrath to highlight all the more the mercy to, that He is extending to them. I know that's a hard thing for us to grasp. That's a hard concept to grasp. Paul is posing it as a theory here, but I think he, the, the point he is making is that even, even ordaining some for His mercy to pass over, that they would be recipients of His wrath, is meant to ultimately end up for His glory and to make His mercy all the clearer to those who receive it. So the context here, of course, that we're looking at this idea of election is that, no, God's Word hasn't failed. We just need to really dig down and understand that election. It's always been the case throughout all of the Old Testament history that not all who are descended physically from Abraham are recipients of the promise. Those whom God has elected before the foundation of the world are the recipients of, of that promise. Now, in the next couple of chapters, we explore, okay, well, then how do we understand what's going on with Israel? So, we've got two more chapters to kind of explain that one. I can't explain that one today. But if we think about how do you apply this understanding of election, I mean, there's a couple of ways to do it. One, it should humble you. You know, one of the problems with religion that atheists are so keen to point out is that atheists, they would say that religion is the cause of all evil in the world. All suffering in the world is a result of religion. And the reason they can say that is by the common definition of religion is here's what you must do in order to reach God. And if you have your way and you have your way, you're, you're focused on your way and you're condemning everybody else. And as a result of getting it right, you find yourself superior. And this is where racism, this is where superiority complexes, this is where the, the poor treatment of others can be justified in the eyes of people. Because I've got it right and you've got it wrong and therefore I need to punish you as a result. I need to see myself as superior as a result. So there is a sense in which I think they have it right, and that kind of religion does lead to violence. It does lead to problems in the world. But if we understand election correctly, it's saying there is no way any of you can do anything to reach God. God is going to be the one to reach down to man. And that's humbling to know that if you are here this morning with your eyes open to see Jesus Christ, you didn't get here because you were more clever than your neighbor. You got here because the Holy Spirit has been doing something in your heart to stir it, to convict it. He's been opening your eyes to see something you would otherwise never be able to see. You know, even as Jesus explains in John chapter 6, you know, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. So it's not as though there's all these people knocking on God's door and He's saying, sorry, you can't come in. I know you're seeking me, but you can't come in because you're not one of the elect. All those who are the elect will come, and none of whom are not the elect will ever seek after God in the sense that we would understand that to be. So, be humble. You had nothing to do with your salvation. Don't have reason to think that you are superior to your neighbor in any sense. You know, bow before the Lord in humble reliance upon what He has done. Uh, see it as this extension of mercy 
that demonstrate the value that He is putting on you because He has gone out of His way to accomplish this election, that He has a glory in store for those whom He has elect, that the rest of history is being orchestrated to put that glory on display. So be excited, be humble, and be excited about the fact that there is a doctrine of election. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for Paul's explanation to his brothers and sisters in his uh, Jewish heritage of how it is that your word has not failed and that election has nothing to do with fairness but has everything to do with mercy. Lord, would you help us to be confident in what you are doing and what you are promising, to be humble before you and before our neighbor, Lord, and to desire you above all things because you have placed such a, a value upon us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.